0: The GIST is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website.
1: It's Monday, September 8th, 2014. Hello. If you're within the sound of my voice, know this... We here at The Gist, in fact, we at all of Slate are in retreat. We are falling back. We are retrenching. The organization, with perhaps inspiration from my hairline, is receding. Oh, make no mistake, our ambitions are not hemmed, and our hemlines remain ambitious, if not flat out shocking. But Slate is having an annual organization wide retreat. We are near the Adirondacks. We are breathing in cool mountain air. We're being almost overrun with the smell of pine and the burbling sound of mountain streams. And if you want to get to more mountain streams, may I suggest listening to the mountain streams in 1.5 times speed. It's much more efficient that way, as God intended. Corporations need to retreat. You never really hear it, but you know why some companies like Eastern Airlines or MF Global or Blockbuster Video, you know why they went out of business? No corporate rope courses. Yeah, that's it. Orange Julius is just one ropes course away from oblivion. My chain of fruit drink beverage stores are destroyed for their lack of rope course. So, we are in a condition of ebb. As I wax on about waning, and by the way, I'm only really happy when it wanes, we have a special show today. We will start off with a brand new, never-before-heard discussion with Dan Carlin, popular podcast host and historian. But after that, we're taking the opportunity to play. We don't want to call it a best-of show because we really stand by all our segments. We think they are all pretty good. So we will call it... A sum of show. No, that is far too weak. We will call it an of, of show. This is an of, of show. These segments are of interest. They're of the past. They're of a time earlier than today. They're of high quality, of course. They're also of about 10 minutes in length. Your time may vary. Now, enjoy as we beat a well thought out, pre planned, carefully orchestrated, and in no way hasty retreat. When armies advance and capture cities and raise flags, there is much cheering or, on the part of the vanquished, lamentation. But some of the most important battles aren't even about fighting. They're about slipping away under cover of darkness or quickly and to great effect. we here to talk about great retreats in military history. Dan Carlin, he's the host of the Hardcore History podcast, which I couldn't recommend more highly. Hello, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Absolutely. So if we were to list the great retreats in history, first of all, before we even start listing, explain to me why that phrase isn't an oxymoron, great retreats.
0: Well, because sometimes retreating is an important part of uh, tactical warfare. The Mongols, for example, all the steppe people, all the Turk horse archer types uh, use retreat as a way to draw the enemy into a trap and to disorganize them. Retreat is something that can actually be an offensive tactic in warfare if you use it right.
1: All right. So if you talk about great retreats, I think you probably have to talk about Napoleon, an epic retreat from Russia.
0: Yes. And one that Truly broke his empire. I mean, that was not a feigned flight. That was a, oh, yeah. a something something that was an attempt at an organized effort that just broke down entirely. You know, they say one of the toughest things to do in warfare is to disengage contact with the enemy and then get away. And Napoleon's the most perfect example you can easily think of where if you don't do it right. And was there ever a better general? So if he can't do it right, it's obviously difficult. And you just watch the French army disintegrate. You know, the whole way home and a tiny. Percentage of their original strength make it back to France
1: was it based on hubris or was it based on ignorance that he uh, he showed that the army marches on its stomach and so forth
0: well, I guess you could call it hubris. he had examples he could look at he could look at uh, Sweden's king Charles the Twelfth for example, uh, who ran into a very similar sort of situation, but if you're Napoleon and if you're leading the grand army of you know Five hundred to seven hundred and fifty thousand men, the greatest force ever assembled it 's really easy to blow off past precedent isn 't it, and just say, yeah, you know Charles the Twelfth was Charles the twelfth but i 'm Napoleon, and I have a lot more people, and uh, you know we'll be able to do what charles the twelfth wasn't Listen this is how someone like a uh, Hitler is able to blow off napoleon 's example right You could just say that 's not a real lesson because the variables have changed, but when you look at something like Napoleon and you watch that disaster. It does sort of tarnish the man's legendary image, doesn't it? Because you may do a lot of great things, but you lose a 750,000-man army in Russia— and tough to rank you up there with someone like an Alexander the Great or a Genghis Khan.
1: Right. And it's funny about hubris. I mean, we could say it was his undoing. But without hubris, what would Napoleon be? He could say, hey, you, hubris got me this far. That's right. You have to be able to think of yourself as singular to begin with. What undid him the most besides the weather, the famous weather? Did the Russians use tactics? Did they understand their terrain better than he did?
0: They didn't play by the rules. There's, there's a whole point during Napoleon's invasion of Russia where he's, he's telling his subordinate commanders what the Russians will do now. We'll capture Moscow, and here's what the Russians will do, and all these things. And the Russians proved once again, as they've done many times in history, to be extremely unpredictable, and Napoleon would get very frustrated that they weren't behaving the way they should. But why can't you just admit you're defeated, and we'll move on from there? And they, did, they burned Moscow down around his troops. That's a pretty frustrating experience. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like playing poker with someone who doesn't know how to play poker. They're the hardest people to play poker against.
0: Or someone who has a gun that will just shoot you if you win. (laughs) I mean, it's a a pretty, you know, burn your own city down to keep the French from having any place to, to rest during the winter. That's old school toughness right there. Yeah. All right, let's
1: go on to another great retreat. What else would you nominate?
0: Certainly we could talk about the famous Long March that Mao Zedong and the um, Chinese communists built into their whole mythology when during the war with the Chinese nationalists, it's supposed to be several different retreats in the 1930s, but Mao and, and the communists were able to escape encirclement and get away to fight another day. And when eventually they would take over China in the late 1940s, they were able to point to that as a defining moment in their history and, and something that they could use as a rallying point to say that's the turning point when everything really changed. You could look at the U.S. in Korea in 1950 where we intervened Uh, In the conflict that had broken out between the two Koreas, it was really a proxy war during the Cold War, and we were pushing the North Koreans toward defeat, and then the Chinese communists, to tie that all in, come over the, the Yellow River, the Yalu, and push down, and our troops had to retreat when the Chosin Reservoir happens, and one of the really nasty retreats in U.S. history that eventually had MacArthur asking perhaps to use nuclear weapons against the Chinese. So those are two different things in that Napoleon's retreat broke
1: him, but Mao's retreat, the Long March, sort of made him, and he wasn't afraid to embrace
0: that. Truthfully, when you look at how the guerrilla movements after Mao would often use uh, the tactics, it almost became like like a little booklet for guerrilla movements, and the idea of strategic retreats was built into this whole asymmetrical warfare idea that guerrilla fighters had used all during the Cold War and even since in many countries around the world.
1: If we wanted to go to America, I would nominate a retreat that You know, in American history, it isn't taught because it's not a great victory of the revolution, but if George Washington and his men weren't able to use fog to escape the Battle of Brooklyn, and that escape occurred on August 27th, 1776, I think there would be no United States of America or at least it would have uh, been delayed for a long time. And this deals with how countries think of retreats. It's sort of a necessary step along the path to a glorious battle, but sometimes the tactics and what you could pull off in a retreat are more glorious than a win when you actually have the overwhelming force
0: certainly it is one of the biggest challenges great generals face on whether or not they can take an army that is fleeing in terror from the enemy calm that terror turn them around organize them and then make them a fighting force again and that's something that general washington for example was was renowned for
1: right to have led a retreat and then to be able to rally your troops again that is a true test of leadership now one of my favorite episodes of hardcore history a couple episodes was the genghis khan episode but the mongols tactic of the feigned retreat
0: tell me how that worked it's an ancient tactic the mongols as a steppe people were inheritors of a tactic that went back all the way to, I mean, they're called the Scythians or the Cimmerians. These are ancient people that the Greeks and the Persians fought who used the same tactic, and there are wonderful old statuettes you can see of these Scythian, Scythian archers, turning around and firing their bows at the pursuing enemy so that they're killing the enemy as they retreat in front of them. There's an old line, I think it's either a Chinese or Islamic text that said, do not pursue the Tartars when they flee. And the Tartars were another name for for the step people's because they're particularly dangerous when they run away you get disorganized you get tired they shoot you the whole way and then when you're all broken they turn around and they fall on you
1: well thank you for advancing this notion of retreats with us dan
0: carlin thanks for having me mike i appreciate it
1: dan carlin is the host of the common sense podcast and the hardcore history podcast This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST at checkout. So Squarespace is simple and easy. It features drag-and-drop content. There are people in Dublin, New York, and Portland to chat with you, you know, about specific things about your website. I mean, you know, these are exciting people. The people they've hired after the job's over, or even during the job. I should say the plans started at 18 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year they have something called responsive design not too responsive it's like a jurassic park situation or a t2 but it's exactly responsive enough and every site comes with an online store So how it works is go to Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That means you're showing support for the GIST. Squarespace is showing support for the GIST, so we want to thank them for that. I also want to say, Squarespace, better web starts with your website. A lot of comedians use words. In fact, all of them do, except the mimes. But their words are often about words. Like, think about the linguistic base humor of George Carlin. Then there's Gary Goleman. Goleman is, I think, the preeminent comic working today who doesn't just talk about words and language. He talks about parts of words. He could break down a punctuation mark like John Madden used to be able to diagram the Bears' defense. Goleman gets into the quirks of abbreviations. Yes, he's the classic abbreviation comic. And in this clip, we'll hear him talk about one poor choice of words that a friend used.
2: My friend Suzanne, she saw this, this documentary about Hitler. Adolf it's probably one of those surnames you don't have to you don't have to qualify it was about hitler's atrocities but uh she couldn't think of the word atrocities so she substituted a a synonym she said gary i saw this very interesting documentary about hitler's shenanigans shenanigans uh close hey Gary Goldman thank you for coming in oh it's my pleasure I'm I'm so so thrilled to to be here (laughs) that you even know who I am makes me
1: makes me very happy absolutely I mean and the reason you're in is I saw you live and I like language is what I do for a living and it just struck me that you were very different so I wanted to get into some of you know your techniques and jokes you say in the setup there, a friend of mine said that.
2: Did that actually, not yes. that it matters, it really- Yes, it really did happen. She did, she did. I mean, there was a setup in that she said, Hitler's, uh, uh, you know, there was that. And I used to make fun of the, the fact that we, and in a longer version of that set, I would make fun of the fact that we we try to think of a better word while we're- Stalling for time with ah, ah. and it sounds so dumb. Yeah. So I always say you should you should try what the Israelis do, which which is my favorite Israeli Hebrew word is uh, <laughs> the, the Henry Kissinger. Really, is it's, that's right? The you Kissinger. You sound much smarter, and they always come out with a much better word. The uh, ratification. The
1: uh, well, but then there's the then there well there then there was the Ed Koch human dial tone technique. It is ah. Uh, how do you <laughs> say ah? <laughs> uh, he did that, and then there's the very nice French. How do you say? How Ah. do you say is a good one. Oh,
2: how do you say is a great one. Yeah. But you can't get away with it if you don't have an accent. Right. And
1: if you don't stick the landing, it's like, it is,
2: how do you say, shenanigans. And you're like, (laughs) no, that's not how you say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you don't stick the landing. Yeah. Yeah, So she said, Hitler's, uh, you know, shenanigans. And, And I just, and I remember going on stage with that, that. That night, I didn't have anything to say, and just that setup. Which I, I'm always reluctant to use a joke that's funny or just in the actual truth, because it's like, well, what did I add to it? I'm just telling a story. That person actually wrote the joke mistakenly. So when I finally was able to come up with some some alternatives to what she could have said, that then then yeah then then it became a joke that I could get behind.
1: Do you build the joke on stage, or do you go off stage and think about? let's synonyms for shenanigans and juxtaposing them with genocide oh,
2: yeah. yeah some words are funnier than others like that like my my favorite new quote is uh the difference between a good word and the right word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug yeah i don't know who said that maybe I think it was Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> it was Goebbels, but right. he wrote he was, it for Hitler. He was the it language guy. Yeah, yeah it came on Hitler's speech. So, yeah. So I'm always looking for the right word, and, and that's actually the most fun of of writing for me is saying it better, cleaner. Brevity is the soul of wit. Right. Well, that, that's sort of the, the opposite of what I what I do. I'm I'm a maximalist, but I understand where that comes from. I I, I guess within the maximalist, there's brevity and economy of words. So.
1: When you have to take that routine on Seth Meyers, some of it gets pared down. Does it kill you to lose some of the... There are other examples that we didn't hear in that clip that you do on stage, right? Yeah.
2: It doesn't kill me. Yeah. Because it's, it's really nice to get on television. It's really fun. <laughs> Everybody calls you and, and compliments you. And, and so to, for time and everything. And a lot of times it's just, yes, this would be great for an audience that knows who I am and is there to see me. But for a television audience or a studio audience, it's like they don't really want to hear the deep cuts it's
1: also interesting. I don't know. Maybe there was a time when people would think about the sensitivities. You're not joking. Obviously, you're not joking about Hitler or anything, but there's this juxtaposition of Hitler and genocide and the Holocaust to yes. wacky words. Yes. But now, I mean, the audience is right there with
2: you. No one seemed to have a problem. Yeah. yeah. I tend not to do it in front of crowds with older Jews <laughs> because they're either the uh, Temple son, Beth son Beth or, Israel welcomes yeah, son, or, son or daughter of a survivor, or grandson of a survivor, and it's just like it's, it's sensitive. But I'm making light of people using the wrong word. Right. And as you said, when you
1: mentioned Goebbels, I just had this thought, like, even Goebbels had to have done the cliche writer's room thing where he takes, like, the young writer and says, Now, the thing you have to understand about Hitler is you're
2: writing in his voice, not voice. <laughs> right? He had to have done all the stuff. Oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it was a huge marketing campaign, and they were really selling yeah. this guy. It, was, See, yeah, it that, was amazing. i mean, it's a great—listen— Heinz, it's a great line. It's just not a great line Hitler would say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say this. This is uh, this is not me. I, I'm I'm. This is uh, ugh, ugh. Get,
1: kill him. <laughs> right. That's the thing. Yeah. Oh God. So was comedy your only job?
2: No. Yeah. No. I, I've my first job out of college was accountant. I worked for what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then I quit that two and a half years in and started a succession of odd jobs including Starbucks barista, doorman, waiter, substitute teacher at my old high school. Oh yeah, how was yeah, that? Yeah, that, that was awesome.
1: Yeah. That was how really old were good. you when you did that?
2: 28. Uh-huh. And <laughs> did you feel did...
1: more of a kinship with the students or the teachers?
2: Both, cuz a lot of the teachers I had had uh-huh. and now I got to sit with them in the in the lounge, in the teachers lounge, and that was it. they smoked, that you could still smoke and they were, you know, a lot of them were clearly burnt out. And I do not know how I was able to pull this off, but from 26 to 28, I was not embarrassed by the fact that I was making $40 a day and working at the same place I tried to get out of years ago. And I, I was a good student. I was promising. I had a football scholarship, and, and now I hear I'm back there, but I really believed in myself, and, and there was no evidence that I would ever make a living <laughs> at anything but substitute teaching or, or accounting, so I, I, I really got a hand it to myself for being deluded. And believing in myself, despite all the evidence that, that I did not have any talent.
1: Did you come from a really supportive
2: family? No. Oh, no. No. <laughs> my brother said, uh, it's great. You love this. Too bad you can't make a living at it. <laughs> and then my mother said, you never make us laugh, <laughs> which wasn't even true. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was the funniest person in the in the family. You
1: killed in that room. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. But I think my mother just wanted to keep me in, in the accounting profession.
1: Are you a contemplator or a blurter? Like you hear something funny... Do you,
2: do you stew on it and kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, yeah. a ruminator. You are a ruminator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A I'm, contemplating ruminator. As yeah.
1: soon as you get the funny thought, do you try to... Not on stage, I mean. You know, in conversation, are you trying to get it out? Like, do you engage... A lot of comedians try to do the one-upsmanship thing?
2: No. I mean, there, there's time for that, but I always feel guilty about working out stuff in, in front of my friends, because most of my friends are, are comedians anyhow, and it's like they can smell it from a mile away. But I will say, you know, recently I had this idea about the, the fact that the greatest generation... Went through World War Two and everything, and and the phone didn't change at all for for a hundred years, <laughs> right? They, they didn't care that it that it couldn't take pictures of their penises and and that they couldn't watch movies on it. They survived fine with the with the phone a hundred years. All it did was you could leave the kitchen with it after a hundred years. And then, I thought they even lived with pulp in their orange juice. Yeah. And then so I started ruminating on on the significance of pulp and that there are different levels of pulp and that they could not be bothered with. They were just happy there was something in their soup. Yeah.
1: Now, you, right, you go, yeah. and Tropicana has...
2: Three levels. Three levels of pulp. There's no, there's lots, and then I can't even believe that this exists. It's some. There's some pulp. So, that's, not a, that's not a quantity of pulp. We're, th- we're so coddled. It's, I never mind. And, and to a survivor of a concentration camp... Lots of pulp it must taste like a smoothie, like a, fra- a frappe. It's so thick. They would, they would enjoy that. What, there are bits of orange in my orange juice. That was a complaint. And Tropicana abided. T- just to beat out Minute Maid. That's capitalism right there is the competition, right? It's frightening. Pulp levels. That's what we're going to get. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Gary Goldman is some of the funniest comedian working today. <laughs> Thank you very much,
2: Gary. Oh, Mike, this was awesome. Thank you.
1: And now the spiel. And my spiel, what I wanted to do now is play a report I did on Morning Edition and play a two-show, this is what I would call a proto-spiel. I mean, when I was a reporter on Morning Edition, it was interviewing experts and using a lot of different clips. It wasn't just me talking as the spiel has become. And the spiel is not always just me talking, right? There are clips in there. But this kind of gets at essentially what I'm doing now, kind of in a more repertorial form. In fact, you'll hear in this piece where I say, this expert thinks that. And it was a fine piece. But in the spiel, I I just wouldn't feel the need to quote an expert who was commenting on the thing that I was commenting on. Anyway, here's the setup. It was a hearing in front of Congress about steroids in baseball. There was Roger Clemens, the famous pitcher, saying over and over again, it is what it is. And there was Brian McNamee, who was his former trainer and accuser. He was also saying it is what it is. So I did this piece. I hope you like it. If not, it is what it is. Among the many points of disagreement between Roger Clemens and his accuser, Brian McNamee, yesterday was how to interpret McNamee's end of a secretly recorded conversation. If Clemens really took steroids, as McNamee alleged, why didn't the former trainer say something like, but Roger, we both know you took steroids? Clemens says the lack of that sort of statement was exonerating evidence, but McNamee had an explanation.
0: I did in my own way. As I speak, and if you had known me, you would have known what I meant to the answer to that question. It is what it is. It is what
1: it is. What is that? In McNamee's case, he says it was standing for...
0: The truth is the truth.
1: It is what it is seemed to confuse many of the congressmen. But Republican Mark Souter of Indiana had a lead. Though the phrase was far into his Hoosier ears, he had it on good authority that this was the sort of thing someone from New York might
0: say. I actually asked a New Yorker on the floor... Uh, and he said that is a, a not only Mr. McNamee expression, a New York expression. For I told the truth. Would it be appropriate in the
1: record to have some discussion of that phrase? It seems that whatever it is what it is is, it isn't a regionalism. The phrase is used by all manner of athlete and public figure. Here's the United States former rep to the U.N., John Bolton, originally from Maryland, on the selection of the secretary general.
0: I wish there had been more candidates, but it is what it is.
1: Former secretary of defense Donald Rumsfeld. Uh,
0: It is what it is.
1: Take it for what you wish to. Race car driver Danica Patrick. Yeah, I'm smaller, but it is what it is. Race car drivers are small in general. Athletes love it is what it is. There, Patrick was using it to mean, what are you going to do? According to Barbara Walrath, who writes the syndicated column Word Court, it is what it is is something like the tofu of phrases. It takes on the flavor of what's around it.
0: It's usually used to mean, leave me alone, uh, don't remind me. Just forget about
1: it. Also like Tofu, it is what it is, is a little mushy. Walrath points out that other attempted conversation stoppers like just forget about it inevitably prompt a response. I don't want to forget about it. But it is what it is, is disarming. If you shoot back, no, it's not what it isn't, you sound a little crazy. Which may very well be why the phrase is a favorite of White House press secretaries.
2: And it's, you know, it, it is what it is. It's a case involving Scooter
1: Libby and his rec- recollections. That was Tony Snow in 2007. Here's Scott McClellan a year earlier when questioned about Dick Cheney's hunting incident.
2: Anything other than what it
1: is. It is what it is, David. In the Bible, Moses asks God his name, and God replies, I am that I am. But if that was the earliest version of it is what it is, NYU linguistics professor Greg Guy points to what he believes to be the next generation. An equivalent phrase has gained some currency in recent years. It's just as cryptic and tautological, but a little more dismissive. Can't figure the word out? Not buying the whole premise? In that case, whatever. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of The Gist. She sometimes brings in muffins in the morning and then unveils marshmallow squares in the afternoon. So, retreats! Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, likes this institution so much that on Twitter he retweets your retreats. You can listen in SoundCloud. You can go to iTunes. There is the Yo! app where when you get the app and sign up for podcast, we tell you the podcast is ready instantaneously via the magic of Yo! Via other magic, more complicated magic, is slate.com slash gist email. And you go there, and you register, and we'll send you an email. Many of you have been listening, and you haven't done this. There's no reason not to do it. Why wouldn't you want an email in your inbox telling you, hey, the gist is up. Hey, you could click this link and listen to it. It's a win-win, win-win-win. Facebook.com slash gist is a good place to go, as is our Twitter feed, slategist. Just email us, if you will, at at slate.com. So we made a promise. We swore we'd remember, which is sort of implied in the promise, right? I mean, without the remembering part, it's not much of a promise. Anyway, no retreat, no surrender. Thanks for listening.